Okay. Well, I hope that your seat belts are fastened and your tray tables are in their upright and locked positions because we're going to turn in our Bibles to James chapter 3 today. And uh, James, uh, so helpful, so practical, so relevant, and, and yet so hard-hitting at times that uh, uh, we, we want to keep our eyes on Christ who will help us to work these things out. But I think this is one of the more convicting chapters of James. So let me uh, start the PowerPoint here for you, and you guys can follow along. James chapter 3 is where we're going, if you want to flip over in that direction. There we go. Okay, and look at that. So real faith in difficult times is what we're talking about. Remember, the book of James is one of the earliest, if not the earliest, New Testament book written, written in the 40s, uh, just a little over 10 years after uh, 15 years after Jesus would have gone back to heaven, the church is in its infancy, uh, baby Christians are trying to figure out how do we walk with God, how do we follow this risen Christ, and, and many of them, of course, knew Christ, uh, a lot more of them uh, did not know him directly necessarily, but they heard of him as the gospel began to spread, particularly first in Jerusalem. And, uh, and after that time, uh, we know that, that one of the immediate challenges, not just in trying to figure things out because everything is new, but one of the immediate challenges was there was immediate, I'm saying that a lot, aren't I? Immediate, yes, right away, there is uh, persecution that happens. And not persecution from the Romans, not persecution from surrounding nations, but persecution from within the nation of Israel, within the city of Jerusalem, as the establishment religion, the the, Jew, the, the, the Pharisaic Judaism of the day that uh, we see Jesus interacting with throughout the Gospels, that, 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 that Judaism becomes hostile toward this new thing called Christianity. And that hostility grows and turns into persecution. We, we see the first uh, semblances of that in the book of Acts. We see Stephen as the first martyr. We, we see uh, Peter and John driven out of cities. And, and, and so that gives us a little bit of glimpse of what's going on in the nation as Christianity begins to grow. And as you know, uh, in James chapter 1, that James is writing to the 12 tribes, meaning Israelites, who have been dispersed abroad, what we call the diaspora, the dispersed ones. And they are uh, Jewish Christians that have been so persecuted and are so uncomfortable and, and being afflicted with suffering because of their faith, they had to pack up their U-Haul and move somewhere else because they, they couldn't work, they couldn't function. And, and again, I just as we come to this, I say this every week, but, but it, it really needs to be in our minds as we read what we're reading is uh, th- these, are, these are brand new Christians who not only lack guidance, but they've been driven from their homes. They've been driven from their businesses. Uh, they've been alienated in many cases from Jewish family that's not converted yet, and, and now um, and now they're they're being stiff armed by uh, by their own family. So that's the context of what we're looking at here. So James' theme is to help these new Christians to understand what does real faith look like. What is real Christianity? Is it just knowing something of Jesus? Is it knowing some of his commandments? Or, as he's arguing here, real faith is a living faith. It is a life-changing, life-dominating, world-altering reality. 
and uh, and that that plays out in all areas of life. And James, in in just a few chapters, is going to overturn most areas of our life, saying, "You see this over here? Let me show you how you apply your faith in that area." So he helps us to understand what is real faith. What does that look like? But don't forget the context that it's it's real faith lived out in the context of difficulty. And I think we can forget that just looking at this and going, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. But but this man, this this speaks for a day and age when life is getting more uncomfortable. And um, so I, I think James can really help us as we as we look over his shoulder to the um, the letter that he writes to this early church. And uh, isn't it isn't it kind of God to to give us a book like this? That that's uh, that shows us Christ, like raw Christianity, Christianity right out of the the hospital nursery, so to speak. It's 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 brand new, and and it's it gives us such a great look at uh, what we're supposed to be um, in our faith. So uh, where have we been? Uh, we're going to talk today about are 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 your words under control? And that's why I said this is going to get very personal. Very quickly, so I, I warned you to make sure your, your seatbelt's fastened. Before we get there, let's just review. Uh, James sets up his outline first by asking us, how do we respond to challenges? And how we respond to challenges both evaluates the health of our faith, and it also gives direction in regard to how we apply our faith. So, for example, he talks about things like this. How do you respond to trials? That was back in chapter 1. Uh, what do you do when you lack wisdom? Uh, when you're humbled, right? How do you respond to that? And, and thinking about uh, poverty and riches and things like that. How do you respond to temptation? What do you, what do you think of temptation? Um, he talks in 17 and 18 about every good and, and perfect thing comes from above, right? And how do we, how does a Christian think about the the innumerable blessings of God, like? running water and heat and electricity and, and of course they didn't have a lot of that back in that day but we do right and, and we we see those things as good gifts from god and we rejoice in them and we don't take them for granted and and so he talks about uh, some of those things relationships are we quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger um, and then he moved on and this is kind of where we left off last time is to think about does our faith lead to godly living and uh uh, so things like this, being a doer of the word. We looked at that section. Pursuing love of neighbor and personal purity. You know, true and undefiled religion is what, according to God? To visit orphans and widows in their distress and to... Pretty simple. Hard to do sometimes, but pretty simple, right? So are, are we loving our neighbor? Are, are, we, are we helping the least of these? And are we guarding our heart from being stained and tainted and influenced by an ungodly world. Uh, do we avoid partiality? We talked about this. This is this is so hard. And you know, we talked about critical race theory over the summer. We talked about racial relations, and and, and you know, it, it's not hard, right? It's not hard. We we treat one another like image bearers of God. That's what human beings are. They bear the image of God. And, and if we were just to do that, to not look at skin color, not look at uh, socioeconomic status, not look at culture, not look at background. We, we just treated one another as fellow image bearers. Think of how better off our planet would be. And, and James hones in on that specifically in regard to showing partiality. 
And then uh, last week we looked specifically at that, that section that, that a lot of Christians stumble over. Faith without works is dead. What does that mean? I thought, I thought faith alone and Christ alone. I thought that was it, right? How can he say a man is justified uh, by works and not by faith alone? That, that sounds like it contradicts Romans and Galatians. And we talked about that, right? Um, if, 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 uh, okay, man, let's do man on the street. So let's say you have a Christian friend and they read James and they go, what on earth is this faith without works is dead? How would, I want to hear one of you, could you summarize what is James saying about the relationship between faith and works and why does it not contradict what we read in Romans and Galatians? Who, who wants to take a shot at that? For those of you that were in class last time. Roger? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right, right. So, faith, so works testify real faith, and, and they and they build up your faith. That's right. So it's not. It, he, James isn't saying you're not a Christian if you don't go do a whole bunch of stuff first, and then have faith, and then that gets you saved. No, no. He's saying that if you're professing faith, if you have real faith, there will be the evidence of that real faith in good works, in a transformed life in some way. That's that's the goal, right? That's Ephesians 2.10, that, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, uh, which God prepared beforehand. So, so yeah, don't, don't, don't let that uh, uh, get you all tangled up. It's important that we understand that. And, you know, if you get some, you know, Mormon Smith or uh, uh, Elder Smith and Elder Jones, some, some nice young men and uh, white shirts and ties on bicycle. They don't ride bicycles out here. It's too dangerous. But, uh, you know, and they talk to you about faith and works. Well, now you know when, when they pull out James 2 and say, see, it's not faith alone. Well, now you're going to know how to respond to them like that. Could you do that, Caleb? Right? Could you do that? Rhea, could you do that? Okay. All right. I know you can. Okay. So let's turn the page now and get to chapter 3. So let's turn there. Uh, and chapter 3 is about, are your words under control? Here is yet another test, another way that James wants us to see what does real faith look like. Real faith ought to transform our words, as that's his argument. And think about that in the context of difficulty. I don't know about you, but I often sin, or, or let me say it like this, the first way that I'm often tempted to sin in difficulty is with my mouth, right? And we could probably go around the room and we all might might have had less admirable moments this last week when, for example, you went and turned the faucet on and no water came out or you woke up to a dark house and a cold house. And But isn't that true? I think that's true for all of us, that when, we're, when we face difficulty, one of the first temptations that we have is a temptation to sin with our words, to sin with our mouths. And so this is very relevant. So let's look at it together. Chapter 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways, but if anyone does not stumble in what he says... He is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now let's just think about this for a little bit. Um, the first point there is understand the seriousness of teaching God's word. He says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. Teaching by context would be teaching 
spiritual things. We would think you know, teaching the word of God because because uh, that brings about a stricter judgment. So, so here's the question I want you to think about. Why does teaching God's word lend itself to a stricter judgment? What do you think about that? Yeah, Melissa? Okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, just just the influence, right? That's true. Um, another thought? Yeah. It's so important to get it accurate. You know, if uh, if Pastor Terry or Don Dietrich or Roger Recksteiner and his home group or uh, one of you guys that works in Awana, if we get it wrong in the context of teaching other people, we've not only blown it ourselves and we're we're misguided but we've we've led astray whoever we're teaching yeah so it's it's huge it is and uh you'll you'll remember you'll remember this that um jesus said in the gospels um by your words you will be justified and your words you shall be condemned we're going to talk about that more in a minute but think about that um, Paul, and you can just write this down, 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul tells Timothy, pay close attention to yourself, meaning your own life, and to your teaching. Persevere. Now, he's talking to a pastor, right? But we can, we can see the application. Be careful. Watch over your own heart. Watch over your own teaching. Persevere in getting that right. And then he says this, and as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. <laughs> no pressure, right? <laughs> and of course, he, he's not saying that in some way, you know, Pastor Keith, because he's a pastor, manufactures salvation for people. That, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, any of us that teach the Bible, if we get it wrong, we may trip up salvation for ourselves and we may mislead other people that are listening to us in regard to our salvation. So there's a huge stewardship there. Now, now look at my pictures. Right in the middle, who, who's the guy right in the middle? That's John MacArthur. Okay, if, you, if you've never, um, maybe you've heard the voice or you know the name, that's Dr. John MacArthur there, okay? Uh, who, who are the ladies up in the corner there? <laughs> Mildred and Amy? Okay, friends of yours? Okay, what about the two gentlemen down in the corner there? Uh, 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 they're in an office setting, it looks like there. So who are they? Okay, struck out there. What, what about over here? And you can't, let me move the let me move the window so you can see what's going on here. Okay, that's, you can see that's, that's mom. <laughs> yes, yeah, where, this one? That one? Okay, Um yeah, it's it's just a, a mom and a dad reading the word of God with their daughter. Okay, these are these are representative of things that we all do, right? We talk to our neighbors, we talk with coworkers, we we read the Bible to our grandkids, right? We all do this, and so when you hear teacher, don't think, oh, that's that's Pastor Terry, you know, that's that's my home group leader. We're all teachers. 
we're all called to be teachers. And, and uh, whether it's, you know, Callum leading his family in, in family worship, whether it's, you know, Gary mentoring uh, men, right? Whether it's Roger leading his home, you know, whoever it is, we all teach in some way and we all share our faith uh, with unbelievers and family. And, and so th- this is just a reminder, we, we want to get this right. Uh, true Christianity, true faith is about... Um, recognizing the seriousness and responsibility of the gospel that's been entrusted to us and working really hard to make sure that we're teaching it accurately in whatever sphere that God calls us to operate in. And, uh, you know, the stricter judgment there, um, actually, I, uh, Rick Holland, who's here this morning, I remember he used to say that, that, that teachers don't have a higher standard. They have a higher accountability to the same standard. Does that make sense? So it's not like, you know, okay, if you're a normal Christian, you know, here's what holiness looks like. If you're a teacher, holiness is what... It's not like that. It's one, it's one standard of holiness, right? It's Jesus. But teachers have a greater accountability to that standard. And I think that's a, that's a very logical way to understand what he's saying here. And, of course, the, the stricter judgment, he's not talking about, you know, a heaven and hell judgment. We talked about it last time. A couple of Sundays ago, this is a judgment for believers. This is a reward, a faithfulness judgment, and so we want to get that right. Okay, so all of you are teachers, right? And you know what? When 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 Caleb and Aiden and and they're talking to their friends and they're trying to share their faith, or or Wyatt and Eric and Jude back there, you know, when they're trying to share their faith with you know soccer buddies or basketball buddies, you know, you guys are functioning just as much as teachers, right? And, and that's awesome because you guys do a great job. You know your faith in that. And now uh, they, they can um, heed this verse to want to be accurate what they say. Yeah, Carl. You cannot not teach. That's right. That's right. Okay. So with that in mind, let, let's go a little step further. Okay. Are your words under control? Let's think about teaching God's word. Secondly, here's the profound truth. If our tongue is under control... The rest of our body will be also. Let me move that here. You want to see my horse? Let's move that over here. There we go. All right. Um, Look at this. Look at verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, a complete man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, we're going to talk about that, but, but here's what he's saying. If you could attain to perfect self-control over your words, the rest of your life would be under control as well. That's what he's saying. And that's a, that's a pretty bold statement, right? So he's going to explain why that is here in a minute. But he gives a couple of analogies. Look at this, verse 3. If we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. How many of you guys work with horses? Okay. Wyatt, put your hand up. I know you do, right? I got Wallace's here. I'm, I'm a recovering city boy from, from L.A. So, um, so talk to me about this, right? You, you put this little harness thing on the horse, right? And, wh- and what's that all about? Ex- educate those of us that are ignorant. How's that work? I know it's a dumb question, but I'm a dumb guy from the city, so humor me here. That's right. 
So you put that thing in their mouth and then the harness that goes around their head and then from the reins, you can actually direct them, right? You, you, can, you can steer the horse. It's a horse steering wheel, right? That's what it is? Okay. And someone else is going to... Okay. So, so that's the argument, right? You, you can take this little bit, this little piece that goes into the horse's mouth, and I didn't know that horses can be like from 900 pounds to like 2,200 pounds. I mean, these are massive, massive creatures. And that little teeny tiny bit that might be, what, six ounces or something like that, eight ounces, uh, steers that massive animal wherever the rider would direct him, right? Or what about this? I'm a little more comfortable with this. Look at the next analogy he gives here. Verse 4, look at the ships also. Now, of course, they didn't have ships that looked like this in that day, but we understand the basic uh, premise is the same, right? Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, or in this case, a propeller. Uh, They are uh, directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. Okay, so where's the rudder in my picture there? What's the rudder? What's that? Yeah, it's right here, right? Right there. The rudder is, it's like a fin in the water, and uh, you take the helm of the ship, and there's different controls. You think of the old wheels and the old sailing ships and whatnot, and nowadays uh, they look a little more modern. But uh, that steers that rudder, and it directs the ship whatever way the pilot desires. Now, now how, much, how much does a modern uh, ocean liner like that weigh? Anybody know? I mean, it, it is an astounding amount of weight and, and cargo and, and water displacement. And yet that little, you think of it, compared to the size of that ship, that rudder is a very small part of the overall boat, isn't it? And yet it's sufficient to steer the ship. And, uh, and that's what he's saying here is you've got these very small devices that we use on horses, that we use on boats, and yet they direct the whole thing. And using that, James is coming back to saying, that's why your mouth is so important. There's something about self-control over your mouth that leads to self-control over your life. That's what he's arguing. And... Um, and, and you know, look, look at this. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Me- meaning it's true, but uh, think of think of the damage. Think of the damage you can do with that little tongue in your mouth. Think of the hurt you can inflict on another human being just with that little muscle in your mouth think of the blessing that you can give to somebody by using that little muscle to encourage somebody to reach out to say hey i was thinking about you this morning uh, to pray for that person right so so the tongue is it's this really small it's got this huge potential this this huge uh, incredible opportunity that it has right so so here's here's the analogy right um, just as that small rudder directs great winds and a great ship, so the tongue is able to direct, uh, as it says here, great things, right? Now he's going to use a, 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 a yet a third analogy, okay? And that's my bottom picture there. Look at this. Uh, verse 
well, it's really the, the bottom half of, of verse 5. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. Um, you know, I'm, I'm from California and keep up with friends and family, both northern and southern California, and I can't think of a year in recent memory that they have not had massive fires out there. In the midst of the coronavirus pandemic last summer, uh, there were all sorts of fires. I mean, California was on fire. And uh, my brother lives uh, in a little apartment in uh, Orange County in Irvine. And uh, there there are some foothills that kind of come down. And, and foothills, when you live in Texas and you go, huh, it's kind of flat out there. Uh, so it's hard to imagine, you know, like these foothills that come right up to the city. But that's kind of how it works. And uh, they were evacuating people from the city because these flames were coming up and over the foothills and coming down into the basin where all there's homes up on those hills. And then as you get down uh, to the basin, that's, you know, businesses, highways, uh, industry. And um, I remember uh, my junior high school is built right up to the to the end of one of these foothills. And... Uh, and growing up, um, I remember waking up one morning and that whole hill was just engulfed on fire. And it's always, you know, it's a cigarette butt. It's someone being careless with ashes. It's, it's kids playing with fireworks. I mean, it, right, it's something like that. Uh, when, I was, uh, when I was seven years old, half, half my block burned down because of some kids playing with bottle rockets a couple doors down. And uh, we get that we call them the Santa Ana winds. You know, out here, winds from the north are cold because they come from Canada. Uh, in California, winds from the north are warm because they come through the desert. And those winds kick up fires and, and just. So my my growing up experience is just these massive, incredible fires. So, oh, hang on here. There we go. All right. Um, so that's what he's saying is that your tongue is like a spark. It's, it's like a cigarette butt. It's like a careless use of fireworks. And that little situation can cause, you know, acres and acres and acres and acres of forest and homes and whatnot to set on fire. So he uses these three analogies to make the point. And then he'll come right down to it here and he says this. Um, look at verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set amongst our members as that which defiles the entire body and is set on fire and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. We say, why the tongue? Why are we, I mean, we understand what he's saying, but we go, really? I mean, that, that's a pretty big claim that our mouth has that much control over the rest of our life. And you might be thinking, why is that true? So I want just hold your place here in James and I want you to turn back with me to Luke chapter six. Because there's a theological reason. There, there's an anthropological reason, meaning that there, there's a, the Bible tells us about the nature of people. And in telling us about the nature of people, it tells us things that explain why James is so adamant about the power of the tongue. Uh, Luke chapter 6, as you're coming uh, to Luke 6, let me just kind of set up the context. Um, uh, Jesus has been teaching his disciples and 
Uh, he's talking, it's, there's some parallels here, here to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It may have been the same sermon. More likely it was a, a similar sermon given on a different occasion. And so he's talking about loving energies and, and uh, uh, judging others and um, you know, removing the log from your own eye. It's a lot of those same themes. And, uh, and he, he turns uh, here in uh, Luke chapter 6. And um, he's going to give us a little bit of an agricultural lesson here in chapter 6, verse 43. He says, For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor on the other hand, a bad tree which produce, produces good fruit. Okay? Everybody with us? Okay. Uh, verse 44. For each tree is known by its fruit. And, and then he gives up the analogy and explains. Uh, we're not really talking about trees and fruit. We're talking about people and what they produce in their life, right? Verse 44, for men do not gather figs from, for, from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. And therefore, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is evil. And the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. Okay, so you got it? We can look at trees and we can go, you know, uh, uh, we, we don't get bananas from an apple tree. Right, we just we understand that you get apples from an apple tree, and and so that's that's what he's saying. You know the tree by the fruit it produces, and then he he says that's what people are like. You know the type of person by what their life produces, and if their life is producing good fruit or what James called last chapter good works, we say that says something about the person, and vice versa. Right? If if we see bad fruit, if we we see a lack of transformation, if we see sin and corruption and, and a lack of, of spiritual life, then we say, well, that tells us something about the person. Okay, So the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. The evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil. Now, here's the key verse. This is, this is helpful. For his... What's it say? His mouth speaks... From that which fills his heart. When the Bible talks about your heart, what's it talking about? What's that? Your inner man, right? It's the real you. It's the spiritual part of you. It's it's the part of you that God sees, right? Is that what you were going to say? Um, so that, that's it, right? It, it's the inner man, the real you, mission control center, you know, whatever we want to call it. And, and now, now do you see why our mouth is so important? Remember, remember let's back up here. See, see the boat? See the ship? That propeller is like your heart, right? The rudder, as we saw, is like your mouth. They're connected together. What, what he's saying is what comes out of your mouth is coming out of your your heart. So to have self-control over your mouth, that when you have your, your your mouth honoring God, loving neighbor, help being helpful, be, being gracious, that says something about who you really are. So 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 it's not so much you know I, I just have to manage my words. No, yes, it's that, but. Your mouth reflects your heart, and your heart is the real you. And that's why if your mouth is under control, it says your heart's under control. Is that, do you see it now? That, that's the point. And James, James is not explicit in saying that, but that's where uh, what Jesus says here is so important. So I, I threw this in your notes just, just to get it, okay? So what comes out of our mouth is indicative of what is in our heart. 
heart. And there's some other references there as well. Um, when I teach on this in counseling, I'll often say it like this, that it's as if God says, he, we talked about pipes all week, haven't we? Oh, we're tired of talking about pipes, aren't we? We just after a week like today. There is a pipe between your heart and your mouth. And whatever is going on in here flows out of here, right? So I'm driving up to pick up uh, Rick from the airport Friday and, and, you know, snow and ice and it's been a week and I get to Crescent. And do you know what greeted me in Crescent? The train. You know me pretty well, don't you? And it was like, really? After a week like... Okay, yeah, okay, I need to repent. I'm repenting, Lord, sorry. It, 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 it's just is what comes out. And it's indicting, isn't it? Our mouths indict or commend our heart. And that's why it's so important uh, to heed what James says, okay? So, so back to James 3, let's go back there. And, um, and he goes a step further. Look at this. Not only is there a connection between the two, he's going to argue that the course of our life is set by the words of our mouth. Back to verse 6. I read it a moment ago. The tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. Um, you say, what do you mean that the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity? I think what he's saying is, you can dishonor Jesus in a thousand ways with your mouth. It's the world of iniquity. Um, what does Proverbs say? There are six things that the Lord hates, and then he forgot one. Seven, right, that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, Feet that run around. I'm, I'm, I'm blowing it now. Help me out here. Um, we got to go get all seven. Yeah, feet that run rapidly to evil, and ones who, one who spreads strife amongst brethren. Ah. That is not good enough, guys. So I'm going to look it up here. Proverbs chapter six. Six things that the Lord hates. Okay, because there's there's a point here. Uh, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. Okay, here's the part I forgot. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, and a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife amongst brothers. Okay? So there's seven things there, six things. He forgot one, so he adds another one. Seven things that God hates, right, that are an abomination to him. Three of the seven are mouth issues, aren't they? That's that's telling. He's saying, of all the things I hate... Three of them are things you do with your mouth. So th- this is a big deal. The, the, the tongue is capable of a world of iniquity. Look at the next verse there, back to James. The tongue is set among our mem- members as that which defiles the entire body. Why? Because it's connected so clearly to your heart. I think that's his argument there. He's, he's not saying that you know if, if I murder somebody with my hands, I, I'm, I'm not, that, that's not as bad as if I murder them with my language. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is your mouth reflects your heart. And we can defile our entire body with our mouth. It sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell itself. Now, now again, if we're talking 
you know, the, the, the way of life in a good thing, that's a good thing, right? I mean, think about how many times the Bible says um, uh, in Proverbs um, how your mouth reveals your wisdom, right? Uh, uh, like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstance. How do you know when you're talking to a wise person? When they know the perfect thing to say in the setting that they're in, in a way that gives grace and builds up other people. Uh, there's another proverb that says, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, we, we saw it, you know, be, be, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Uh, Proverbs 18, 13, right? Uh, he who gives an answer before he hears, it's folly and shame to him, right? We get get ahead of the game and we're giving answers before we've listened. So, so how do you know a wise man? According to Proverbs, the first way you know him is by what's coming out of his mouth or what's not coming out of his mouth. So it sets on fire the course of life, meaning if we get those things under control, that says something about our heart. And if our heart is right, our words are right, then the course of life is going to be set. Set on fire by hell. What do you think that means? What do you think that means? That's a hard verse, isn't it? Uh, who was, or, or, or say, say it like this, uh, hell was made for what pers- purpose, according to the Bible? The devil and his angels. That's right, okay. Uh, what is one of the titles of the devil, of Satan? He's the father of lies. He's the deceiver. We know Satan first in the scriptures by what he says that is deceitful and blasphemous and lies and manipulative, right? He's the father of lies. He's the father of sinning with the mouth. And I think that's what James is saying is, where does all this corruption come from? Where does all all these ways we can sin with our mouth, where, where does that come from? It goes back... To the devil himself, and, and hell here is is used as a an association, if you will, uh, with Satan, the father of lies. Okay, so so the course of our life is set by the word, and, and that helps us too because um, we talked about being teachers and being faithful. Uh, you guys know Romans uh, ten nine, right? If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Uh, and then Paul goes on to say, you know, how are they going to hear unless someone tells them? And so our words are very important in terms of leading people to salvation. That they're important in our own confession of our own uh, gospel. Um, our words and the control or lack of control we have over our words really do set the course of much of all. How many of you have ever, well, I want to ask for examples, but just raise your hand if, if you can relate to this. How many of you have ever said something that cost you greatly? I'll put my hand up. Because there's a lot at stake sometimes, right? And that's what he's saying. Get your words under control. That probably means your heart is under control. And if your heart's under control, your words are under control, it's going to direct the course of your life. And Matthew 12, of course, is uh, by your words, you will be justified. The words, you will be condemned. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's go one step further. Um, look at verse 7. For every species of beasts and birds, reptiles, creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. Okay, we can go up to the Fort Worth Zoo and see that that's true. Okay, 
But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Why is that true? Just think and based on what we've learned so far. Why would he say it's impossible to tame the tongue? Yeah. Yes, because it's impossible for us to tame our heart. That's the connection. He's not saying that there aren't nice people out there that are really nice with their words. What he's saying is because our mouth represents our heart and our hearts are wicked and rebellious against God, what that means is no one tames it, right? No one is able to tame the tongue apart from God doing something in the heart without regeneration, without transformation of that. And uh, so I don't, I don't think he's saying, well, it's hopeless. I think what he's saying is you need a savior. You need someone to help you with that and work in that. Uh, so no one tames the tongue. It's a restless evil. Uh, and, and, and do you find that to be true? Even, even as believers, would you say with me, it is just really hard. I know I shouldn't respond like that to my kids. I do it anyway sometimes. Not because I want to. It's just hard. I, I know I shouldn't um, get angry in my heart at an inanimate object that runs on rails in Crescent, but I do because it's hard. And so, so let this verse just push us back to the need for a Savior, the, the need for redemption, the need for God to work in our hearts and in our lives, and as he works in our heart, then the reflection in the mouth will be, uh, will be where it needs to be. Last section here, look at this. Um, For if we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God, from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh? And this this is the low point of the section where he says we... We use that same God-given instrument called our mouths to bless God and we'll turn right around often in the same moment, the same day, the same hour, and we will use blasphemy. What We will curse our fellow man. We will sin with our mouth. And, and this just indicts us at the hypocrisy here. To use our tongues to praise God and then turn around and curse someone isn't just foreign to creation, meaning you don't find a spring. You know, we, we go out there, we find a spring, and, oh, hey, there's fresh water. We go back the next day, oh, it's salt water. And then we go, oh, it's fresh water again. But you don't see that, right? It's one or the other. And so not only is it, is it foreign to creation, he says, to use our tongues to praise God and curse people, but it demeans the name of God himself, and he, he appeals to us uh, brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Um, what do we do with this? I, I think we do two things. I think the first is we see how absolutely desperate we are in need of Christ's work in our heart 
and then pray that that would be reflected in our language and in our words. That's hard. It's impossible to tame apart from uh, God's work in, in redemption and, and justification and salvation and our, sanct- our ongoing sanctification. Uh, so so let, let's let this push us back to our need for a Savior. Uh, and then second, I think this directs our sanctification, doesn't it? You say, well, man, I, I got all sorts of things in my life I need to work on. What should I work on first? Aim at your words because your words have a connection to your heart in a unique way. And as you work on uh, speaking kindly and, and mercifully and graciously and turning away from, from cursing and blasphemy and profanity and, and, and grumbling and argumentation and all, all the ways we sin with our mouths, as we, as we put both barrels of our sanctification efforts at our mouths... I think what he's saying is we will see a, an exponential effect in our overall lives. Because he says, you tame the tongue, you tame the whole body also. Okay, So that, that, that's strategic to know what to work on. So, so moms and dads, we need to work on that, right? Grandparents, we need to work on that. Uh, coworkers, students, athletes, right? Whatever context we're using our words, we need to work on those things. Um, and pray that God would would make our mouths to be a conduit of the gospel and a conduit of blessing, and uh, that he might be uh, honored to use those things for his glory. So let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for... Uh, this is a hard chapter. It, it, it's hard even to say thank you for something that, that hurts and convicts, but, but we need that. This is grace. This is kindness that you would show us how important it is that we get our mouths under control because it reflects our heart and our heart directs the whole ship of our life. Uh, Lord, we're, uh, we're all in need of grace here. We, we all can, can grow more. And, uh, and so we pray that you would be kind to us as we would turn to you in humility and repentance and, and contrition and confession, that you would work in our hearts and help us to be known, what, 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 a, what a challenge to, that we would be known as not just individuals but as a church that is known as a church that just blesses other people with our mouths. Uh, our families would be like that. Our coworkers would recognize that. Uh, Lord, would you, would you do that? Uh, not because we just want to be better but because we want the name of Christ to be held high and, and we don't want anything in our words to inhibit somebody from coming to Christ or to be discouraged from growing in him be, because of that. Uh, so help us, work in us, redeem our efforts and thank you for grace and mercy that you, you promise to give us when we go to you. Uh, We're grateful, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.